Now there's a brand new web page, especially for this podcast. The Politocrat Daily Podcast can now be found on thepolitocrat.com. A brand new page that centralizes all of the places that you can listen to this podcast. The major platforms and many others at thepolitocrat.com. Lots of content that you can see there right now and every single day. So subscribe now to the Politocrat Daily Podcast and make sure you visit thepolitocrat.com. Thank you. Welcome to the Politocrat. I am Omar Moore. It is Monday, January the 4th, 2021. On this edition of The Politocrat, a conversation with Tia Mitchell, the Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We'll be talking about the two Georgia Senate runoff races, as we are now less than 24 hours before the polls open for those two hugely important and consequential elections. Plus, a conversation you will not want to miss, or at least my monologue that you will not want to miss. All of that coming up next. With me right now, my first guest of the new year is Tia Mitchell. My goodness me, it's really an honor to have her on. Tia Mitchell is the Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. She does a lot of reporting, a lot of it on Georgia and very important things going on in that state. I want to wish a happy new year and a 2021 welcome to Tia Mitchell. Tia, welcome and happy new year to you. Thank you. Happy New Year to you, too. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for being here as well, Tia. Um, My goodness me, um, Georgia, what a hotbed of politics and interest. Um, Obviously, so much going on. Um, We've seen what's gone on with uh, the revelations regarding uh, the guy that's leaving the White House in uh, roughly, what, 16 days or so, and and the Secretary of State in Georgia. Uh, With the tapes that have come out, and that's a conversation we could have forever. But um, we're going to talk about these two runoff races in Georgia. Um, first of all, I'd love to ask you about the voter enthusiasm. What are you seeing in Georgia with voters right now as we get to the very big elections tomorrow? Well, I think in some ways, voter enthusiasm in Georgia has become like voter fatigue because they've been so inundated with advertisements, mailers, text messages, phone calls, social media posts. And so there are a lot of Georgia voters are just ready for this election to be over so they can kind of get their personal space back in a way, you know, Um 
and because a lot of voters voted early, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, the ads haven't ceased, the mailers haven't ceased. So even people who cast their ballot, you know, days or weeks ago are still being inundated. So, you know, I think voters are, especially on the Democratic side, they're energized and they are engaged and they do want to win both Senate seats, but they're also just kind of, it's been a long slog. It's been nonstop in Georgia for months on end, because as you know, we went straight from the general election to the runoffs. So voters are just ready to get it over with. Um, On the Republican side, I would say it's a little bit mixed. It's the same wanting to get it over with and the same enthusiasm to an extent, because you also have a lot of Republican voters who believe Donald Trump when he says that the election uh, was rigged for Joe Biden and that uh, the state officials have not done a good job in the election and that possibly your ballots won't be counted. So that is definitely a narrative on the Republican side that is also affecting kind of how this runoff is being perceived. Wow. Uh, that was going to ask you about, you already anticipated something I was going to ask you. You mentioned the Republicans and of course, some of the disarray with some of the supporters and voters um, who were at this really strange rally. <laughs> a lot of these things are strange uh, these days. Um, when Purdue and Leffler were at this rally uh, and um, <laughs> people were shouting out, you know, supporting, you know, for Trump and, and Purdue tried to get a word in and he literally only had a few seconds to do that. Um, how much of that, carries on do you think into tomorrow so it um president trump um today's monday president trump is actually coming to georgia today for a rally in dalton georgia which is northwest georgia a very conservative part of the state and i expect that to carry um at the rally and that energy continues to you know, affect Republican voters and could affect Republican voters tomorrow during the election. The big question mark is what is turnout, particularly in the conservative pockets of Northwest Georgia and Northeast Georgia, where right now turnout is down a little bit. So the question is, do they ramp back up on election day? We know it can happen. We know that, you know, the current trend is that Republican voters like voting on election day because there's been so much criticism of absentee balloting. But if President Trump shows up today and, you know, we don't know what he might say, you know, if he says, you know what, Leffler and Purdue, you haven't done enough for me. I'm not, I don't care if you show up tomorrow. That could affect turnout. Now, if he comes out more forcefully and says, you know, no, you got to show up tomorrow. We need you. I don't care. We, yeah, we don't like the folks who are counting. We don't trust them, but still show up, still go vote. That can help boost turnout. The the concern uh, for a lot of Republicans is if Donald Trump almost tries to do both and that the message becomes so muddy, nothing's clear. And then that leaves, you know, voters kind of on their own to to kind of decide which one they want to believe. Um, but those that message from Donald Trump is going to be really important today because we know it's going to drive the conversation into Election Day. And nobody knows what he's going to say tonight. 
we shall indeed see <laughs> what will happen there with that to you. Um, so we've talked about the voters and the atmosphere and the mindset that you um, seem to be uh, observing, what you're observing and seeing. Um, and you've written a number of things most recently. I think yesterday you had a column uh, about Georgia, the swearing in and the four Georgia representatives and things like that. Um, that people should read, and I will link to it in the liner notes of this episode, um, and also you. your social media information as well, which uh, you can definitely um, mention as well at the end of our conversation here. Um, but now I want to talk uh, to you and ask you about the shape of these two races in particular. Uh, the first one I'd like uh, you to shed some light on for the listeners and viewers is the race between uh, Kelly Leffler and Reverend uh, Raphael Warnock. Can you talk about the shape of that race as you see it now with uh, less than 24 hours to go till the polls open? Yeah, so that race has been, it's, it's different for a lot of reasons, mainly because both Kelly Leffler and Reverend Warnock are first-time candidates. Kelly Leffler is an incumbent because she was appointed, but she's never run for office before. And of course, Reverend Warnock, although he's been a high-profile preacher at a very high-profile church and he's been involved in social justice issues, he's never run for office before. So as a result, both of them are trying to, you know, have spent this election trying to introduce themselves to voters and kind of appeal to their base in a way that they think will go over the best. So for Kelly Leffler, it's been trying to convince Republican voters that she is a Trump supporter, that they should send her to Washington to protect his legacy and um, and to kind of convince people that she is a true conservative because that's been the question when she was first appointed, that she was not conservative enough. And then on Reverend Warnock's side, he's been trying to convince voters that he's not the crazy radical liberal that some conservatives have tried to paint him as. He's gone so far as to have ads where he's walking a dog and cuddling his puppy and, you know, very much so trying to make sure that he avoids um, being painted as the angry black man and the angry, you know, being painted as another Jeremiah Wright. And so as that is kind of shaped that race, um, Kelly Leffler, every time she talks about Reverend Warnock, says radical liberal or radical leftist Reverend Raphael Warnock. She repeats it so often it's almost become a meme. Because again, that's what has shown that can, can turn off even moderate voters and definitely conservatives and get them to want to make sure that the Republicans win these races because they're concerned that uh, Democrats will control the Senate and be able to push the country leftward. So that's really been the shape of the race. Um, both have crisscrossed the state. Both have been very high profile, which is a little bit different than the, con the other contests. And I think um, the last time you were on, um here with, with me. I had asked, I may have asked, um, to what extent do you think the financial uh, scandal, the uh, insider trading, and I know that she was in, uh, she was investigated and the charges were dropped or there were no charges issued rather, um, um, 
to what extent does any of that cloud um, the race for her, uh, Kelly Leffer? So the stock trading, which she was never accused, she was never charged with wrongdoing by the Securities um, Commission, the Federal Elections Commission, and the Senate Ethics Committee. None of them have uh, thus far um, said that she's done anything wrong. And so she says she was cleared. Um, We don't say she was cleared. We just say that she was never accused of wrongdoing. It's hard to be cleared if you were never accused of anything by by these organizations. Um, But that has been an attack line for the Democrats. And I think, again, the whole focus of these contests is turnout. And I do think that Democrats who are appealing to you know, regular folks, so to speak, who don't have a net worth of a half billion dollars, that's billion with a B, like Kelly Leffler, then that does resonate that she, you know, has this active stock portfolio. And even during the coronavirus pandemic, there were trades made on her behalf that stood to enrich her in ways that could have been affected by what she knew about the pandemic. So I do think that resonates with people. The other attack line that Democrats have used against Kelly Leffler is that she has been photographed with a man who has ties to the Ku Klux Klan and white nationalist movements. Now, from what we know, you know, it was just, you know, they take a lot of pictures at these events. There's a photo line at any event, Democrats and Republicans, and they're not necessarily doing background checks on every single person who takes a picture with them. So Kelly Leffler says it was just a supporter who posed for a picture. It's not that she knew who he was or condones who he is. Um, But, you know, you had John Ossoff go on Fox News Live and say Kelly Leffler campaigns with members of the Ku Klux Klan. And that was some hyperbole and an exaggeration But I do think it resonated with some voters who say, you know, Kelly Leffler, maybe you should be more vigilant. And maybe you should, once you learned who this guy was, maybe you should have condemned him and not just said, well, you know, I take pictures with a lot of people. And so, again, for those who are already inclined not to want to support Kelly Leffler, both the picture with the white nationalists and the stock trading scandal, gives them more of a reason to not support her. And um, from what I'm learning, um, there was more than one picture and more than one person. Now, you can correct me if I'm wrong about that. I think so. It was the same person in a couple of pictures, but there were also, for example, um, during the general election when Kelly Leffler was campaigning with Marjorie Taylor Greene, who we know is a QAnon supporter. And they had militia members show up at some of their campaign events. And um, those militia members were not necessarily embraced. But again, there are pictures of, you know, those militia members at Leffler campaign events. So again, in the totality, Democrats have said, even if you didn't know some of these folks were going to show up, Once they did, maybe you should have spoken more strongly against them. And again, they've also said, you know, she campaigned uh, willingly with Marjorie Taylor Greene, knowing many of the problematic um, things that Marjorie Taylor Greene has said about people of color 
about Muslims um, and again, spreading QAnon conspiracy theories. And of course, uh, for those who may not be aware, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene was sworn in uh, to the 117th Congress on Sunday, uh, wearing a mask that said Trump won and uh, furthermore had pulled down that mask. I was watching it myself on C-SPAN on several occasions, pulling down the mask and speaking, which is against the House rules, uh, as people may or may not know. Um, I appreciate what you're saying, uh, Tia, about the race that we've just spoken about. Let's go now to the second race here. The one, of course, between David Perdue and John Ossoff. Uh, and if, am I pronouncing his name right? I always get his, seem to get his second, his last name wrong. What's, do you know what yep, the Yep, Ossoff is correct. Okay, yes. Ossoff, terrific. So mm-hmm. can you talk a bit about um, the shape of that race as well, please? Yes, so that race is different for several reasons. Number one, the Leffler and Warnock race is a special election to finish the term of Senator Johnny Isaacson, who retired early with um, about halfway through a six-year term because he was getting elderly and had some health challenges. Whereas the Ossoff-Purdue race is for a full six-year term. For that reason, right now, that seat is empty because Purdue's term ended on Sunday around noon and there won't be a new member until this runoff race is uh, counted and a winner is certified and sworn in. Um, The election itself has been different because again, Purdue is a first term senator. He um, is more familiar to Georgia voters because he ran statewide six years ago and he's been out and about as a senator for the last six years. John Ossoff is also familiar to Georgia voters because he ran for Congress in 2017 in a very high profile special election that garnered national attention. And so even though it was a congressional race in suburban Atlanta, you know, folks across the nation knew the name Ossoff at the time. And so for them, it's been less about introducing themselves to voters and more about they've really gone on the attack against each other. And Purdue, I think, in in an attempt to avoid confrontation with Ossoff and to avoid those attacks from Ossoff has kept a much lower profile. He has not done many media interviews. He does not generally speak to um, the AJC, my newspaper. He prefers to go on conservative media outlets like Fox News or speak to, you know, smaller publications in smaller towns around Georgia. Purdue does not generally announce his campaign schedule in advance. He'll show up in small towns and we won't find out about it until they tell us after the fact where he was. Um, And so that's very different than Kelly Leffler, who does, you know, let us know and and wants the media to come because, again, she's trying to introduce herself to voters. John Ossoff, even though he is known and has run for office before, he's very young. He's in his mid-30s and, you know, relatively young for speaking of a U.S. senator. He's he's young. but he's a very good public speaker. And so he has been known for like these zingers, you know, he just happened to be caught. Um, Fox News showed up at a campaign event and put him on the air live and he used it to his advantage to really attack Purdue and Leffler in very sharp words that were again aired live on Fox News. And so um, Senator Purdue has refused to debate John Ossoff during the runoff, for example. 
Um, and right now he's not even on the campaign trail. He um, is quarantining. Um, we learned right around New Year's Eve, I think that he had been exposed to the coronavirus through a staffer who tested positive. And so as a result, he decided to quarantine even though it was the final days of the campaign. And we don't even know if he's gonna show up tonight for the big rally with President Trump. Um, because again, he says, you know, he was exposed, but that also conveniently gave him an excuse to, you know, not have to campaign with President Trump. And it gave him an excuse not to have to go to Washington to take some votes that could have angered President Trump um, that the Senate took on New Year's Day. So that dynamic's been a lot different in that race. Remarkable, remarkable. And it's so interesting because I believe also, and you can correct me here if I'm wrong, Tia, that Kelly Leffler also had a situation with coronavirus, test negative and test positive. And I don't even remember how that all resolved itself, what happened there. Yeah, that was around Christmas time that um, Kelly Leffler um, had, you know, a rapid test that was inconclusive. Then it was positive. Then another rapid test was negative. So she took a couple of days off the campaign trail, but she didn't take much time off. Uh, because again, she said, eventually the test came back negative, two consecutive negative tests. And she said she was in the clear. I see. And then one other, a couple other quick things. Uh, one of them, um, you talked about Kay Leffler and, and posing with the Klansmen and, and whatnot. Um, David Perdue, I mean, what he did with the elongating the nose or enlarging the nose of John Ossoff, who's, uh, who's Jewish, um, the things he said about uh, now or soon to be Vice President Kamala Harris. He, has he apologized for any of those things, David Perdue? Um, no. And there was a recent controversy um, over the weekend because there's a photo that was posted in October, but it didn't make the rounds until this weekend of David Perdue holding up a three finger symbol that has been used as a symbol of white supremacy. And um, that Democrats began circulating the picture and saying, look at David Perdue holding up this white supremacist symbol. Um, the person who posted the picture back in October said, you know, this was about David Perdue posing with teenagers who were election volunteers who were celebrating knocking on 3000 doors and that there was nothing wrong with it, that the person who posted it was actually black and that the two teenagers in the picture were uh, people of color, they said. So um, again, there's no evidence that David Perdue um, was purposely posing, uh, using a symbol of white supremacy um, but there are still a lot of questions about, you know, why would he hold his fingers that way? And was he perhaps duped and didn't know um, that that's what that could have been interpreted as? Um, but one consistent in all of these controversies is he has not apologized, you know, because he says he's done nothing wrong. You know, the ad around Ossoff, um, Ossoff um, complained about it, but Purdue's team just kind of shrugged it off when it came to mocking Kamala Harris's name that became a much bigger controversy because again, it's almost as if David Perdue was almost catering to a base by mocking Harris because he actually pronounced her name correctly to begin with, you know? And then he almost muddied it. It's, it came across as if he flubbed it on purpose to kind of mock her. And so that um, was um, a big source of criticism, but he just kind of, 
shook it off and, and kept it moving. And again, he's been quarantining, um, but his campaign has said, look, you got the explanation from the black guy who posted this picture. There was nothing wrong and it's much to do about nothing. Um, and again, like we spoke about Leffler, these controversies don't necessarily do anything to affect Purdue with his core constituency. But if you were already you know, inclined not to support him, then these probably do add more fuel to the fire. I really do appreciate uh, your time. I mean, goodness gracious me, we could go on for a few more minutes about all of this. Uh, David Perdue, a lot of privilege there, all of those kinds of things, you know, Sonny Perdue and all of this, the trades for him too, and all of the fact that he's traded more than any other member of Congress. We can go on and on, um, but uh, for now, we'll leave it right there. I've had the distinguished pleasure of speaking to Tia Mitchell, the Washington correspondent of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. She's also at the NABJ. Can you tell us quickly what your title is at the NABJ, National Association of Black Journalists? Yes, I'm chair of the political task force. So the whole goal is to get more black journalists covering politics and to help increase the pipeline of black journalists who are interested in being political reporters. Terrific. That is really great. And uh, I will put links up to that organization, too. And your social media. If you want to give out your social media, now's the time to do it, please. Yes, I'm at Tia Reports on both Facebook and Twitter. So that's T-I-A-R-E-P-O-R-T-S at Tia Reports. Follow me. I love to engage with folks. Wonderful. Tia Mitchell, your analysis and your reporting is absolutely stellar. It's such an honor to have you on. So thank you so very much for being on this edition of the Politocrat Daily Podcast. Happy New Year to you, the first guest of the year. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. The Dick of the Day Award. It's something that I have decided to bring as a feature of sorts to this podcast. I know that sounds a little bit strange and odd, um, and it is in a way. Um, but the reason why is because um, I want to start calling out these misogynists. And I have called them out um, during the course of this podcast over the last year, um, almost a year now. But I want to start to highlight these people, but also offer an opportunity for you to see um, the many different forms that misogyny takes. Um, not that you don't know those, of course you do. Um, but I, I want to make a point of broadcasting and verbalizing that more. And particularly for men, I think it's really important that we speak up and speak out against misogyny. I really believe that we must do that. It's us who need to stand up against toxic masculinity and refute it, reject it, and offer a masculinity that is centered and proper, not centered in control, but centered in our own hearts and souls, where it is life-affirming, not this destructiveness and this violence against women that many in our gender perpetrate and perpetuate. So not every day, but on days when it is warranted, 
you will hear me talk about the Dick of the Day Award or the D-O-T-D. And on the politocrat.com website, you will see video of the inaugural recipient of that award. It is Republican Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska here in the United States for his treatment of Melissa Sass, his spouse, during the swearing-in in the 117th Congress, the private ceremony administered by the outgoing Vice President Mike Pence, just the behavior of Ben Sass was absolutely disgraceful, humiliating his wife. I mean, this is your second term you're being sworn into and that's how you behave toward Melissa Sass, your wife? Listen, you just have to go to thepolitocrat.com There's video of this. I am oh so tempted to play the audio of it, but it doesn't really come across as strongly as the visuals do. The visuals just say everything. Maybe I'll play it so you can hear it. But really seeing it, that's when you see how this hits home. In so many people, so many of you have experienced this. So many of you have experienced your spouse doing something like this. Maybe you've done it. And maybe that's why when I tweeted about this at the popcorn R-E-E-L, it didn't get much of a reaction at all. Is that because misogyny and the marginalization and violence against women hits too close to home? For those men who perpetrate it? Is that because there are women who recognize this behavior? Because their own husbands have done just the same to them? Shakedown, breakdown, takedown, you busted. And look, you know, that was Bob Seger there um, with Shakedown. Um, And the way I look at this right now, um, you may have heard the earlier part of that, which was no matter where you hide, I'm coming after you. That should be the posture of Joe Biden and the incoming Justice Department when it comes to Donald J. Trump. And I must say, I'm really loathe to even mention the name of the current occupant of the White House. I really am. Um, At least these next 16 days, as I was, of course, having the conversation with Tia Mitchell, and I want to thank Tia Mitchell once again, 
the Washington correspondent at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution for coming on and uh, spending time talking about the two Georgia races in the U.S. Senate. And of course, everybody in Georgia, please vote. Please vote. If you've not voted yet in Georgia, make sure that you do so tomorrow because that's the very last time you're going to get to do that in terms of these two Senate races. It's really something that we don't see too often. Two Senate races in the same state on the same day being voted on. It just is quite rare, I think. And it is rare. Um, But there you have it. So tomorrow's a big day. Big day. January 5th. Huge day in Georgia. And for the country, by the way. So that's really important. Um, We've got to pull out all the stops in Georgia. Um, Get in touch with voters. Get in touch with um, people in Georgia to remind them to vote. Whatever you have to do um, to aid the effort to get turnout, um, please do so. And it's so important to get um, these two men elected, as far as I'm concerned. John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock. Um, Really important. In 16 days, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be sworn in as the president and vice president of the United States of America. And the thing about this is that there's good news to that, obviously, because we're not going to have to be dealing with the current occupant of the White House My only hope is that the corporate news media does not continue to talk about him and report on him. And I know that that expectation and that hope is going to be dashed pretty darn quickly. (laughs) As they say, it's the hope that kills. (laughs) Uh, Because they're going to keep talking about him. And of course, the pundits will keep talking about him. And of course... You get the idea. It's just going to end. The politicians will mention his name and you'll hear fancy buzzwords. They're not even fancy, like Trumpism, you know, which is really just, which is not just, it is really racism. And imagine if people in the media, not all of them, this, this doesn't apply to all of them, but imagine if those pundits in the media who do this would just start to say racism instead of Trumpism. Let's not soften this any. Okay, this is not Trumpism, it's racism. This is not Trumpism, it's misogyny. This is not Trumpism, it's anti-Islamicism. It is not, I mean, this is what we, and, and you see, and, and the thing is, the, 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 you know, the New York Times and all these other publications, not, not Tia's publication, <laughs> but some of these publications, not all of them, they tiptoe around words like racism and racist. They tiptoe around it. And it's, you know, terms like racially tinged. But they've got no problem saying Trumpism. Like it's some kind of anthem or some kind of joyous declaration. And it's replete throughout stories and in the lingo and in the consciousness. But the word racism isn't used as much. Or at least it's not when it's not for them to use it. When it's very clear that's what it is. And what we saw, by the way, these last 24 hours, speaking of shakedowns, is downright criminal what we've seen. We've seen the criminality 
right in our faces. And it seems as if this guy in the White House has saved his best or worst moment of criminality to last. I mean, this guy has committed crimes almost every day of his tenure in the White House. Lying is one of the biggest ones, but there's many, many worse ones than that even. This shakedown attempted of the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, is really the icing on the cake for a 50-year criminal record of Donald J. Trump. And uh, my goodness me, once a criminal, always a criminal. I really don't understand why some people are hemming and hawing. Tapes released by the Washington Post, there was something like five hours worth of, of audio of Donald Trump trying to shake down the Republican Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, who, by the way, is no friend to black voters in Georgia. And he's no friend to the Democratic process because at least when it came to Stacey Abrams' race two years ago, or I should say now three years ago, since we are in 2021, but just over two years ago, he was no friend. He had come in after Brad, uh, Brian Kemp had to quit, forced to, not because he wanted to, but he was forced to relinquish his job as the Georgia Secretary of State while he was running for the Georgia governorship. Isn't that interesting? We have a governor, um, governor candidate for Georgia who is running for that office while he's Secretary of State of Georgia. Now, what could possibly go wrong there? I wonder what could go wrong with that scenario. So Brian Kemp was forced to step down because, you know, we don't want people to think that the person who counts the votes and is in charge of uh, officiating and orchestrating and making sure the election process in the state of Georgia runs smoothly would possibly want to do anything to help his own standing in the race for governor of the very same state that he's a secretary of state of. We wouldn't want any kind of impropriety there. We wouldn't want anyone to think that there could possibly be any kind of inappropriate situation or conflict of interest. So in steps Brad Raffensperger, who again, you know, this is the purging of votes. I mean, I can go back to that. You know the story if you've listened to this podcast on any kind of occasion of regularity. Is very simple, is that there were black voters purged off the voting rolls in Georgia. And Greg Palast, who has been on this podcast, was on this podcast last year, 2020, has talked about this. And he, he even was able to, in his intrepid reporting and investigation, he's been doing this kind of work for 30, 35 years or so. And in his intrepid reporting, he was able, in his investigation, he was able to get Georgia to turn over all the roles of the people that it had purged. And they won a lawsuit down there with, with his help and the ACLUs. I mean, this, this, is, this is just, and to reinstate those voters, 
Uh, this is thousands of voters, like fifty to 60,000, if not more. I'm sure it was probably more than that, that were purged off the rolls. So with all of that background, Brad Raffensperger, surely, surely he would knuckle, knuckle and buckle to Donald J. Trump. Because, you know, all these Republicans, you know, they're supposedly afraid of him. Right. That's the meme that we've been given, that the Republicans are afraid of him, and which is just garbage. It's the Republicans who are running this operation, not Donald Trump. I know some people might find that piece of information a little bit harder to digest. I mean, it is early uh, in the year. <laughs> we haven't we haven't got to. Uh, well, we're not going to have the Mardi Gras that we want, but we've not got to Mardi Gras yet. We've not got to Fat Tuesday yet. Uh, uh, so d- digesting should not be difficult here uh, on January 4th, 2021. But my goodness me, I-, I-, I think that this is so clear. You thought that Brad Raffensperger would say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Donald Trump, you need uh, 12,000 votes or so, 11,800, 11,700. Do I hear 11,702 or... I'll give them to you. I'll find a way to steal it for you. So here's the comical thing, and I'm not going to play any of these tapes. I'll, I can link to them, and I think I will link to it, because I think it's important. The Washington Post, I think they released about an hour of these tapes. I've only listened to literally a minute. I can't stand this guy's voice. Uh, I, and I, I know I'm not alone. I cannot stand the sound of Donald Trump's voice. Can you imagine him hosting? Can you imagine him hosting a podcast? I mean, look, I, I'm, look, I know I'm not perfect. But my God, can you imagine Donald Trump hold, hosting a podcast? <laughs> I mean, this would be his podcast, these tapes, um, this audio. I recommend that you listen to a few minutes of it. Um, he is telling... Brad Raffensperger to commit a crime for him. And he himself is committing a crime by doing that. It's just, it's so blatant. It's so blatant. And I think the reason why the Republicans do this is because they don't want it to matter anymore to you, to me, to the American public. Things are now so in your face that the goal of the Republican Party, and quite frankly, the corporate news media that keeps reporting on this breathlessly without any real contextual analysis or any kind of perspective, really, in my view, is to make this such that the American public says, oh, oh, just another day at the Republican Party. Oh, oh. That's the read I have on this. I really do. The point is that it is not supposed to matter to you anymore. Because the cynical take, and I've talked about cynicism, is that, oh, well, they all do it. Oh, well, what's new? He's done it for the last four going on 50 years. So what's new? And that is going to be the reaction of some. 
But I, I think it's important to not lose sight of what we must stand up for in this country. I mean, we've got to stand up for what is right. And what is right is that Joe Biden and the Justice Department should absolutely be prosecuting, investigating, prosecuting Donald J. Trump. I mean, there's no question about it. This is a federal crime. It involves an executive calling into a state, Georgia, openly on audio, telling the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, to find, find nearly 12,000 votes that do not exist. And of course, that was the roughly the margin of victory for, for, for Joe Biden. So this is a crime. There are no ifs, ands, buts, maybes, candies, nuts, Christmas tree lights, Kwanzaa celebrations, menorahs, festivals of Eid. There's no, there's no, nothing at all. That gets in the way of the fact that Donald Trump has committed yet another crime. Joe Biden, your job is not to walk away from this. Because if you do, you are not building back better. You are normalizing and continuing the 60 year trend, if not longer of subsequent presidents absolving the criminality of prior occupants of the White House. I mean, that's what you're doing. I mean, in essence, I mean, it's been roughly 50 years, but in, eff in essence, we began this with, and it's probably happened, it's happened before that, by the way, because we can go back to the 18, 1870s. The, Ru the Rutherford B. Hay Samuel J. Tilden compromise, which I've talked about on this podcast before. A contested election that was hotly contested and very close, unlike this one. And Samuel J. Tilden, the Democrat, said to Rutherford B. Hay, is the Republican. At that time when Democrats were the evil empire and the Republicans were the the. Uh, party of uh, abolition and anti-enslavement. And Tilden said, you can have the White House, sir, but I want uh, all these federal troops gone from the southern states. And that basically ended Reconstruction and began yet another violent attack, murderous attack on black people. I mean, really, that I'm, I, I've talked about this before. Hayes and Tilden. This is a very different scenario, though, because in this scenario, the election was not close. I am fed up of political people saying and analysts saying, oh, well, it was only a few hundred votes in each state. 
This election was not close, okay? It was not close. It was not close. Seven and a half million vote difference, okay? An electoral college landslide. 306 to 232 or thereabouts. I mean, this is just ridiculous. This election was not close. And when you flip at least two states that went for the incumbent this time around, you flip those two states to your column, that is an emphatic victory. You not only won with more than 7 million votes, you not only had well over 81 million votes, the most in history in the U.S. election, but you also managed to flip at least two states from Republican columns to Democratic columns. I mean, come on. Arizona? Georgia? Oh, come on. Oh, but it was really close. No, it wasn't. Let's put that to bed now. And I hope that we will um, stop hearing that kind of nonsense. It wasn't close. The American public delivered a decisive statement. And Joe Biden now, the beneficiary of that decisive statement, that landslide statement, now must deliver the same. Because it is no good being the beneficiary of over 81 million votes from those who want this clown, this orange clown, gone. Only for you, and if you, turn around and let him walk out the back door with no prosecution or even an investigation. I mean, even an investigation. That is not building back better. And Mr. President-elect, I really do hope that you change your mind about this. Nixon and Ford in the 70s, I was about to get to that earlier, and, and Ford turns around and pardons Nixon after all of the stuff that Nixon did, the criminality. We can't do this anymore. I think, I think it's something that we should just right here and now say, enough is enough. You're gone, as the song says. You're gone, honey. You're busted. And that is the message that Joe Biden should be sending to Donald J. Trump. Welcome back. I hope in the last segment you were able to hear the sound of the rain. Oh, isn't that a lovely sound? The rain. It's, it's, there's something cleansing about that. There's something, I don't know. Um, especially as the, the rain hits the window or the rain hits whatever, the sound that it makes. That, that was just gold. <laughs> uh, it's just amazing. By the way, that's just an observation. Um, ambient noise, rain. Especially rain. Oh my goodness, it's amazing. 
Um, anyway, where was I? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, I want to, you know, yeah, um, Joe Biden and the Justice Department should be prosecuting, the Justice Department should be prosecuting the living daylights out of Donald J. Trump. I mean, this is just ridiculous. To walk away from that, as I said, would really be a derelict, quite frankly, I'm going to add this, would be a dereliction of your duties and responsibilities. I mean, if Brad Raffensperger can stand up as a Republican and say, uh, no, I'm not going along with this, buddy. You lost. Then surely Joe Biden, as the Democratic incoming, uh, the president who is a Democrat, Surely Joe Biden can with his power. Surely he and the uh, Department of Justice can register an inkling of interest in all of this criminality and all of this um, dangerous evil. Surely there's an interest in putting paid to it, putting a stop to all of that. We'll see if... They are interested in ending the criminality of Donald J. Trump or if they're going to just give him a backdoor pass and then continue to enact foreign policy that kills a lot of innocent people around the world. I mean, is, is that going to be the contrast? Is that what we're heading to? I mean, I don't want to tip any hats I don't have any extra knowledge that you have. But is, is that what we're going to see here? You're going to let this guy go out the door, the guy that, you know, started the year exactly a year ago, or just a year and a day or two ago, a year and two days ago. Donald Trump assassinated. And people have already forgotten this because of coronavirus and a lot of other things. Assassinated the uh, top ranking, the top ranking general in Iran's cabinet. Imagine if that happened here. We'd be up in arms about it. Or at least some of us would be. Including myself. I just don't want us to repeat these foreign policy things. That's a whole other topic for another day, which I'm going to explore here. And with some people who know um, a little bit about foreign policy. Because that's not being talked about, of course. Surprise, surprise. I want to just tell you this story. Laundromat, San Francisco, in the morning, me, I believe in getting that laundry done. <laughs> and I'm going to do it, damn it. <laughs> I'm not, you know, this is the thing that's just, I walk into the laundromat. There's a guy who's clearly been sleeping in there, white guy, clearly been sleeping in there. And it looks like he's just putting uh, the finishing layer of clothing on. And this is in the morning. On Sunday, early in the morning. He's not wearing a mask. First thing I notice, no mask. I look at him and I just keep walking. I've got laundry to do, damn it. So I... I <laughs> put the laundry in and all of a sudden I hear there's an N 
in the woodpile. Except, of course, he says the entire word. And he repeats this. Just like the conservative member of parliament in England who said this on the record or off the record during a meeting with constituents or some board. And she basically got a slap on the wrist for that. But in in, in the situation on Sunday morning, he said this at least five times. There's just me and him in the laundromat. No one else. It's early in the morning. What do you think that I did? I'll give you three choices. A, I responded to him. B, I did not respond to him. C, I walked up to him and got in his face. Which of those three things did you, do you think I did? Ponder that and I'll return. I know, right in the middle of that kind of an event, someone, you know, clearly a racist. But I want you to think about that for a moment. I'll be right back. Welcome back. So what do you think I did? This blatantly racist piece of garbage who is using that word. He and I are the only two people in the laundromat. What's your answer? What do you think? Well, here's the answer. I ignored him. I did not say anything. And that was very difficult for me to do. I have said things in the past when this has happened here in San Francisco, California, because that's where it happened. This notion that, oh, it can't happen in California. Oh, no. San Francisco. Oh, it's such a nice... No, it's a quote-unquote tolerant place. This has got nothing to do with any of that. You have racists everywhere. You have them in your family. You have them in your marital relationship. You have them in your workplace or your remote workplace or your non-workplace or down the street, your next-door neighbor. It's not paranoia. This is the truth. Everywhere. So let's put that one to bed for a second, shall we? But here's why I decided not to say anything. That's completely against my character and nature, by the way. In case you had trouble guessing that. Five things. One. He's a white man without a mask on. He's not wearing a mask. Number one. What is it to me to go up to him and get in his face 
with me wearing a mask and him not wearing one. How do you think that's going to end? Number two, there are security cameras in this laundromat. Number three, there is a private police slash security force for this laundromat. And as by way of background, by way of background, when I have gone to that laundromat very early in the mornings on occasion, police have come in there. Who are you? What are you doing here? And the laundromat's 20, open, to, no, they say it's open, not open 24 hours, but it is, right? So got lots of work to do, got stuff to do, got things to do, got to get this done, that done, the other done, do this, do that, do the other. It's a busy, you know, it's a busy days. These are, you know, there's things to be done. <laughs> so naturally, boom, early, early, early. What are you doing here? You know, cop, full, full uniform. What are you do? This is months ago, What a year ago. What are you doing here? What am I doing here? I live here, I live down the street, I live here. What am I doing here? <laughs> I didn't say that part to him. White cop, male, probably in his uh, early 60s. Not that that makes a difference because people in their 60s who are white men can execute you as quick, who are police or not police, can execute you as quickly as a black person if that white person is 21 years old and female or male. It really, you know, as long as they've got badges and guns or don't and they're white and you're black in this country or in lots of others, you know, these MFers, violent MFers, don't have any reasons. Right? You're behaving yourself. You're being yourself. You're black. You're walking down the street. You're proud of yourself. You're confident and you're, you know, you, you know a little bit about the world and the way it works. And you got some rat ass, racist, you know, white person come up to you. And didn't, he didn't come up to me. Um, and saying all this stuff, and again, in the in the in the a year ago, this cop is questioning me, and I had to, you know, as I always do, you know, just diffuse the situation. Though he wasn't being nasty, and just say no, I just walked down the street. I like to do the, you know, and he left me alone, thankfully, thankfully, and I told you I've called the police before once, you know, only to find out that it was raccoons <laughs> that were. Tr- that were that were that were running around sounded like human be- big raccoons oh boy that's another story i've told that before but here's the thing what was it worth to me right now if i get into it with this guy the cops will come and the thing is i bet you the police didn't come and he was sleeping there in that laundromat they didn't come up to him and if they did they certainly let him continue to sleep there or he came back in there and slept and they didn't call the cops again. So his ass <laughs> was sleeping in that laundromat. I go and do laundry in that laundromat very early in the morning, you know, about a year or so ago. And, oh, what are you doing here? And I, and I, and I live in the neighborhood. <laughs> oh, dearie me, dearie me. It never fails, does it? But the white guy without the mask on, the white guy without the mask on in a laundromat that makes it very clear you have to have a darn mask on when you're in here. Oh, he gets to sleep in the darn place. 
And then he gets to say, in this, in that, and in the woodpile. Isn't that special? So, security cameras, white guy not wearing a mask, the guy could have had a weapon on him, police would surely show up if they saw any altercation on those video cameras, which are being monitored, by the way. Now, I know there was a, an event, I think last week or the week before, video making the rounds, um, where there was an altercation like this, except it was in a grocery store. And the white guy, the racist, was shouting, calling this black man, a black man in the same convenience store or grocery store, calling him N, N this, N that, calling it to his face. Now, to me, it doesn't make a difference. This particular racist that I was dealing with or not dealing with by ignoring him was saying N in the woodpile, N in the woodpile. Was he calling me N directly? No, but that does not matter whether he's calling me it directly or not, right? It's, he knows I'm black, I know he's white. And yeah, he says all these things. If a white person had walked in and I had not, he would not be saying those things, right? So he's directing it at me and it's racist whether he's directing it at me or not. So... In the convenience store example, the video of that, the guy, the black guy, gets this can of some drink or beer and goes, backs, whacks it across the face of this white guy. Now, again, I'm not condoning um, violence, but this guy, I'm sorry. This, um, no, I'm not sorry, actually. No, I'm not. This racist absolutely got what he deserved. And the brother proceeded to absolutely pummel him. And there would be people going, was he drunk? Was he mentally ill? And as Roland Martin says, mental illness has got nothing to do with any of this. The fact that this guy in my situation was homeless has got nothing to do with this. Why are people always looking for these predicates when white people do these racist things? When you've got, why is it that there are people who are quick, lickety quick, 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 to find a predicate. Oh, well, he must have been mentally ill. Oh, was he intoxicated? Oh, was she, did she forget to take her meds today? I mean, it always, but when a black person is doing something incorrect or wrong or morally reprehensible, no one's rushing to find any predicate for a black person. Do you notice that? That there's no effort to find, oh, well, did this black person have a difficult day? I mean, were they dealing with the strain and the stresses of racism? And, I mean, were they dealing with all of that? Huh? Was there some kind of mental illness issue? Or were they suffering from hypertension? Huh? Were they suffering from uh, diabetic conditions? Yeah, no, no, no. None of that. None of that. There's no inquiry there, is there? All the conditions that black folk do suffer from. 
But no, no, that couldn't possibly be it. They're just criminals, you see. But for that white woman who accused the, the young brother of taking her cell phone, the young black man who just was minding his business, a kid, he's a teenager, and you got this crazy ass, just racist, this is racist. She's flailing around, you know. Oh, he's the one. You know, the, the and, I, and I'm sorry, I, I've got to, enough of this Karen language either, by the way. You need to start saying, as I said earlier about people saying Trumpism, you've got to just start calling this stuff out, mate. This isn't Karen nothing. This is, this is racism, okay? These are racists. These are white people who are racist. And, and that is the way we deal with this. Stop softening it. And only a society that is racist would do that. <laughs> it's like the, the people, of course, of course, a, a society that is replete with institutional racism and systemic racism and is the author and architect of racism. Of course, that society would invent these cutesy little nicknames for the exact thing that it is. Karens. Trumpism. God, come on now. That, that's the problem. <laughs> Though that's one of the many problems. We cannot confront ourselves and specifically white Americans, many of them cannot confront themselves or the country that they live in. Now, of course, they're always exceptions. But I am not here for the exceptions, for the 25%. I'm not here for them because that is what they should do. They are people of conscience. And I recognize that Viola Luizzo and Heather Heyer, Summer Taylor, James Reeb, and so many other people who are white have given their lives. John Brown, you can go look all those people up. I don't have the time to uh, get into and explain who they are, but I'm sure that those names are familiar to some of you. But that's, you know, again, you know, there's still 75 or 80%, some might say more, of white Americans and, quite frankly, white people beyond the United States, all around the world, who... I just don't think they're ever going to do the excavation. They're just not going to. They see a society that benefits them and they don't have any incentive. And that society that benefits them never challenges them, rarely does. And it's always through the lens of someone black having to challenge them and never or rarely someone white doing it. Which is why Jane Elliott, who you've got to listen to, on this podcast from last season during the calendar year that has just passed. And by the way, you can listen to the year-end episode, literally December 31st of 2020, when I included her as part of the uh, highlights of the great conversations on this podcast that I had with some really good people last year. Jane Elliott is one of them. You need to listen to Jane Elliott a white woman who challenges white people 
um, and really does it in the kind of ways you have to do it. Not with this white fragility nonsense, but with real truth in your face, sucker, kind of truth that makes you uncomfortable. Because damn it, you know, black folk have been made uncomfortable in this country ever since we were brought here in chains. So excuse me and pardon me if you are listening to this and you are white and uncomfortable. Because that's actually where you should be at this point. Because it's actually more dangerous for you to not be uncomfortable. It is more dangerous for you to be very comfortable and, oh, you know, no, that is not what you want to be. You want to be uncomfortable, but not just uncomfortable. You want to turn that discomfort and uncomfort into something life affirming, behavior changing. And since it is a new year, rather than just leave you with my story of this racist piece of garbage who slinked out of that laundromat having known that I wasn't going to confront him because maybe he wanted to start something and maybe spit with his non-masked face since it is, you know, again, I keep saying the people who I never see who don't wear the masks if there are any at all who don't now they're almost always white 99% of them That thinking and that behavior has to change. And since this race has leaked out, slithered out, like the slug that he is, out of that laundromat, because he realized, oh, you know, he's not going to take the bait. You know, if this was not the COVID era, I, I might have acted differently. If this was not the COVID era, you know, I get it. The guy in the other video, in the video, who beat down this racist fool. I don't know if he got charged with doing that, with beating him. I'm sure the cops got. I'm surprised he's not dead, by the way. But, I mean, this is, this is what happens here, folks. And the conversation I had earlier with Tia Mitchell features why I continue to say that White Americans, by and large, still have got a lot of work to do to purge themselves of this notion that they are not racist. There's still so much work to do because as, I, as we spoke about here in our conversation, Tia Mitchell and I, both of these candidates are trafficking in racism. They are, I'm sorry, but I'm going to say this because I know that Tia Mitchell can't. She's a reporter. So she can't say this. I'm going to. Is that these two people, in my mind, are racist people. They are taking advantage of a system that is racist, of voters who are racist, of an entire party that is racist, and a country that is racist institutionally and socially and otherwise, environmentally and everything else, housing, economically, everything. So you've got these two well-off people, rich people. You've got David Perdue, a millionaire, a gazillionaire. He's, he's an heir to a fortune. His uncle is Sonny Perdue, the chicken guy. 
the chicken guy. Quack, 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 quack. Whatever, I can't do a chicken. I don't eat chicken. Uh, I, I've stopped doing that, and gosh, does it make a difference. It's really good not to. I know that's difficult for some, um, but you will see a difference if you stop eating it. And I loved chicken for years. I've gone chicken-free now for a little while, and it's good, at least a year or so, maybe longer. Longer than that. Anyway, uh, that's an aside. Sonny Perdue, right, and, and David Perdue, these guys are rich. So, uh, David Perdue, more trades than anyone. More trades than anyone in Congress over the last God knows how long. Thousands of trades, right? Says these racist things, um, mocking and saying racist things about Kamala Harris, who is going to be the vice president. And she's going to be president of the same Senate. Hopefully that David Perdue will be out of come January the 6th, the day after tomorrow's election. And of course, Perdue now basically is not a senator. He's kind of in limbo here. And, you know, again, saying and doing racist things, you know, putting John Ossoff's nose. I mean, give me a break. Oh, John Ossoff's Jewish. So now we're going to say something racist and anti-Semitic. So let's do that. Huh? Huh? And that's what David Perdue did. Facebook ad. It's like, and people just blink at this now. Oh, no big deal. These shouldn't be, that's the conditions of where we are and why we are where we are, is that we just blink at all this stuff now, don't we? This is what I said earlier, that the Republicans just don't want this to matter anymore to you. And just the incident after incident, you get beaten down, worn down, uh, 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 and you just go on to the next thing, which is extremely dangerous. This is why, and this is how Nazi Germany thrived, right? People just didn't do anything. The so-called good German. We have got to be better. And white Americans and white people in general have got to be better. And being better means confronting the racism in yourself. The impulses you have. You have to do it. This world must do it. It must. There is no other choice. You have to have those conversations. And if there's any more town halls, I want to see those town halls be all white when it comes to racism and discussing it and discussing, discussing racists in your community and in your family and in yourself, maybe. I don't want to see a town hall ever again on racism with black people in it because black folk have told that story for hundreds of years. Now it's about what white people are going to do about it so that we don't have this and an institution that is built on it, on black backs. White fragility does not cut it in 2021. Oh no, it does not cut it. Heck, Jane Elliott, a white woman, was telling you that in 1968. Literally a day after Dr. King was murdered, assassinated. 
That was really the touchstone of where her work began. Telling white people that they've got to change and educating them and doing these exercises that really confronted their own racism. Put it in their face. She's one of the most important guests I've had on this program, this podcast. Jane Elliott. I'm actually going to link to her site. I believe it's janeelliott.com. Please study Jane Elliott, if you're white especially. And I'm telling you, the work needs to be done. It's a new year. If you haven't made this kind of New Year's resolution, then make it and then live up to keeping it in your daily example. If you see some white person like this raging, crazy, racist white woman who video has circulated on Instagram about, who's accusing the first black person she sees of stealing her cell phone. When of course, of course, it was not this black youngster. It was something that she did. She lost her blooming phone somewhere and it was found somewhere. And she's attacking, attacking physically this young brother and getting the hotel manager. Here, it's him. He's black. That's, that's why he's guilty. He, he, he. It's a new year, folks. And you have to confront yourselves. Don't just think that, oh, I don't say N in a woodpile. So that means I'm not racist. That old BS ain't going to cut it anymore. You have a new president walking in here in 16 days time and a new vice president. No, I'm not going to say it's because Kamala Harris is a black woman that you should change your ways. That's not what I'm saying because President Obama is a black man and some of the people listening to me are still racist. That ain't changed any. So... White Americans, white people in general, the vast majority of you, the vast majority of you have work to do. And the people that I come into contact with who tell me, well, is that my dinner? And I'm walking in um, with a bag of something I purchased and there's an old white woman that comes up to me uh, in the building here. Um, and says, well, is that my dinner? It's like, why would you say that? You think that's an innocent joke? And maybe some of you hearing that think that's innocent. But again, it's this same assumption that's unspoken but very clear in the white mind. Just like the young white woman who's, you know, the crazy ass racist who's blaming and pointing at the first black youngster she sees in the hotel. Oh, it's him. He's got my phone. He's got my phone. Never laid eyes on him two seconds before that. He's got my phone. Any old black person would do, right? And then you got this old, old white woman telling me, oh, is that my dinner? Oh, I'm stepping fetch it to you now. Uh, is, is that it? Oh, I'm the delivery boy. 
I'm a grown-ass man. And you will speak to me with respect. The same way you would speak to some white person. Which you, who you would never say, I don't think, is that my dinner. Maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. But do you understand that it is not the same when you say that to a black person? Do you understand that? Everything is not fair and equal or just. It's, it's just comical to me. But it's tragic comical because it is not funny. It's not comical, actually, either. And people tell these so-called jokes in order to not confront who they themselves are. <laughs> hey, listen, I'm all for levity and comedy and fun. Believe me, I am. I love it. But not when people are dying in this country, dying around the planet. In all manner of situations, when there's this racist, invective and systemic racism that is murdering black people, brown people as well, indigenous populations. I don't, you know, people, people joke, jokes. Joke is just another word for avoiding the truth or avoiding confronting the truth. Although the greatest comedians provide the truth in a so-called joke, right? Many a truth spoken in jest. You know, we can go back. The Chris Rocks of the world, the Lenny Bruces of the world, the Paul Moonies of the world, the Richard Pryors of the world, the Dave Chappelle's of the world, and the George Collins of the world. And why am I struggling to even put a female name there? Moms Mabley? I mean, there's, look, there's great f female comedians. You know, Whitney Cummings is, is pretty darn good. You know, Chelsea Handler, um, Sarah Silverman. Um, oh, gosh, I'm forgetting that. I'm forgetting that. Oh, that sister. And then she escapes my. She's oh. I, there's a really good black woman, too, who um, excellent. And why am I blank? And I know Wanda Sykes is one a great comedian, but there's others. And I just argh, it's just burning me up. Anyway, you get my, you get my drift. You get my drift. We have to stop believing that we're this lovely egalitarian nation, right? We have to stop that nonsense, I think. And we have to start doing some real digging, excavating. Because yesterday when this Racist said these things. A white woman walked in, by the way. And I didn't say anything. And she didn't say anything. I had my reasons. I outlined those reasons to you. I wonder what her reasons were. The 117th Congress was sworn in yesterday, but, well, we 
What were her reasons for not saying anything as a white woman? Was it safety? Was it something else? Was it silence equals consent? Was it, I don't want to, I don't want to give any reasons to her. She's not here to defend herself or not even a case of defending. She's not here to say anything. But I dare say that she would say, well, I'm not a racist. Not I'm an anti-racist. I'm not a racist. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I am Omar Moore.